Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to see you all. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I, uh, number one, want to start by thanking you. Number two, I want to thank the amazing staff over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for making our lunch and learns possible. And uh, God willing, soon again, they should be lunch and learn like the old days, not just Zoom and learn, God willing. But of course, we'll have Zoom on as well. I also want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. I got to tell you, I, I was able to get some of the statistics of, you know, just because it's interesting. I've been giving classes on Torah Anytime for now for like three years or so, I think. And uh, Baruch Hashem, I was recently able to get some statistics on, on the downloads and views of my classes. And I'm like, I am overwhelmed with appreciation to the good Lord above for giving us the gems that are the Kolyakov brothers, Shimon and Ruben Kolyakov, who started Torah Anytime, because what they're making available to the world is unreal. And I could see like the tens of thousands of views, Baruch Hashem, over the years that otherwise never would have seen these classes. We never would have learned. Now they're learning with us. We're, we're learning together and they're learning with us. So it's, it's incredible. It's really, really wild. And I'm so deeply appreciative to them for all that they do. And I also want to uh, mention that this is available on Spotify, on uh, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts under the name Burnham on the Parsha, B-U-R-N-H-A-M on the Parsha. I also want to say that today's learning should be a zechus for the Refuah Shalema of my mother, uh, Nechama Mindel Bas Shifra, who is uh, currently right now uh, working her way, hopefully, to a very rapid recovery with all of your prayers and all your schosim and your merits um, and, and, and to a uh, rapid recovery from the coronavirus. Um, okay, let's get started. <clears throat> Here we go. This is a really important week because we got Rosh Hashanah coming up, God willing, this Monday night. And we got to make sure we know what Rosh Hashanah is all about what our job in Rosh Hashanah is, and how do we come out looking on the other end of this. So I want to first start off by a, a law that's brought down in the tour. okay? So the tour was one of the first forms of halacha written down, and he writes the, the following. In the tour, Pillar Arachayim, which deals with day-to-day -day laws and laws of life and living, 581. He says, You're supposed to wash yourself and get a haircut before Rosh Hashanah, according to the Medrash. And here's the Medrash. Rav Simon. Rav Simon says, For who is the great nation that has Hashem who is close to them at all times? Who is this? Rav Chanina, Rav Yeshua, Omrim. Rav Chanina and Rav Yeshua say, Eza um. What other nation is like the Jewish people? We know, the, so to speak, the personality of our God. What does that mean? And explains that in the rest of the world, when you have a person who's going to court, so he gets all dressed up in black, and he, he puts on, he puts, wraps himself in black, and he, he grows out his hair, and he doesn't cut his nails. He's so nervous, right, as his court date is coming closer and closer, because he doesn't know what's going to be the end result of his court case. He does not know how his judgment is going to end up coming out. excuse me, but Yisrael is not like that. They get dressed up in white. And we wrap ourselves in a white talus, in a white clothing. 
and we take a shave or we trim our beards, and we cut our nails, and we get dressed up for, for Rosh Hashanah, and we eat and we drink and we're happy in Rosh Hashanah, Lefi, why? Shayodim, that they know that Hashem is going to make a miracle for them and they're going to get a good judgment. Therefore, you should get a haircut and you should get freshly laundered clothing on in Arab Rosh Hashanah. And on Rosh Hashanah, to serve many delectable dishes. So here we go. Boom. The Torah seems to be pretty comfortable with saying that we're, we're, we're sure that God's going to do miracles for us. Again, the language was because we know that God is going to make a miracle. Now, there's a rule in Judaism. You know what you don't rely on? You don't rely on miracles. Just like there's a rule in relationships. Never date somebody Relying that they're going to change after you get married. Never, ever. That's not going to happen. Don't rely on people to change after you get married. Don't rely on miracles. <laughs> I know that's almost the same thing. That someone's going to change after you get married. And then miracles. But don't rely on miracles. We have a rule. We don't rely on miracles. You're not allowed to. It's funny. I've got a brother whose name is Nisim, which means miracles. And just now, my, my brother, he always comes through. He comes through no matter what. He's, a, he's an incredible young man, very dedicated, very hardworking, very special, very charismatic. He always gets the job done. So my, my other brother who lives here in America, he wrote, in our family, we, are, we do rely on Nisim. We do rely on miracles. But we, he's referring to my brother Nisim, right? So we rely on Nisim if you're in the part of the Burnham family and you have a brother named Nisim. But if you don't have a brother named Nisim, you should not be relying on miracles. That's a rule in Judaism. We don't rely on miracles. But here, what is the Torah saying? The Jewish code of law is saying to you, yeah, go home, eat, drink, put out lots of delicacies, be happy, get all dressed up. It's an exciting day. We know, we know that God is going to make miracles. Who says? Who says that God is going to make miracles for us? Now, interestingly enough, You know, the Torah was written in the early part of the second millennia of the Common Era. So in the, I think it was written in the 1300s, maybe the late 1200s. It's a long time ago. But the truth is, the Torah could have been relying upon a source which goes back way, way, way before that. He could have been relying on a source that goes back to about 500 BCE, 500 before the Common Era, that describes a situation where the Jews were coming back from the exile into Babylonia. The Jews had gone into Babylonia after the destruction of the first temple, which was destroyed by the Babylonians. And when they went into Babylonia, unfortunately, they mixed into the people and they became involved and they married out and they, they got involved in idol worship. They did all kinds of terrible sins. So much so that we know there was a decree of genocide on them. That was the story of Achashverosh and Esther. But then they get out of that story and they get permission to go rebuild the base of Migdash and they go back to Israel. But the majority of them don't go back to Israel. The majority of them are like, no, we're comfortable here. We just paid off our mortgage. Thank you very much. After 30 years, fixed rate, we finally paid off our mortgage. We're not going anywhere any, anytime soon. So a lot of people did not leave. There was a small percentage of the Jewish people who were willing to leave. 
with Ezra the scribe who brought them up from Babel, from Babylonia. And if you read the book of Nehemiah, which is one of the books of the Holy Scripture, if you read the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, and it describes what happened. Vayayasvu kolaam, this is Pasuk Aleph, verse 1, 8 1, Nehemiah 8 1. Vayayasvu kolaam kishachad al rechova shilafne sharamayim. And the entire people assembled as one man into the square before the water gate. They said to Ezra the scribe, They asked Ezra the scribe to bring the scroll of the Torah of Moshe, which the Lord had given to the Jewish people. And Ezra brought the Sefer Torah out in front of the congregation. Man and woman and children. And anybody who was old enough to understand and listen, which day was this? Biyom echad lechodesh hashvi'i, on the first day of the seventh month. What is the first day of the seventh month? That is Rosh Hashanah. By Yikra Bolof Nerachov, Asher Lefne Sharmayim, and he started reading from the Sefer Torah, facing the square in front of the water gate. Min ha'or ad machatitzayom. He started reading it from the first light of day as the light of day started breaking across the horizon all the way until midday. So basically, six hours are sitting there. Neged ha'anashim, definitely they, they did not have the uh, the attention span of people today, right? Today, people's attention span is 13 seconds and like, boom, they're out. You know what I'm saying? He was sitting there reading to them from the Torah from the first light from the morning until midday, okay? Neged ha'anashim, ba'anashim, ba'mevinim. He was there across from the women, the men, and anybody else who understood, the children who were able to understand, the Ozni Torah, and all the people are listening. They're listening very, very carefully to what was being taught. And he's standing there on top of a special wooden uh, tower that was made for this purpose. And then it goes on who was standing to his right, who was standing to his left, a lot of people. And then what happens? By Torah, they read from the scroll of the teaching of God and they translated it. And they were making, making it sensible to the people, right? Not everyone was fluent in Hebrew. They had been living in Aramaic for a long time. They had been speaking Aramaic when they lived in Babylonia. So that he was really, wasn't just reading it straight. He was reading and explaining and translating. And everyone's starting to understand. And then what, ha what happens? The people start crying. The people are sitting there in shock as they listen to the Torah, which they had abandoned and their families had abandoned so many years ago and so many decades ago. And they start crying. Okay. And Nehemiah the Tirshita says, Ezra Cohen and Ezra the scribe, Hasofer, the scribe, and the Levim that were helping the people understand, they said to the entire nation, Hayom. Today is holy to Hashem, your God. Altis Ablu. Sorry, sorry, I read it out of order, actually. because my cut and paste on the Microsoft Word. They said, Altis Ablu, do not mourn. But Altis Ku, and don't cry. The people were all crying when they heard the Torah. When they were hearing the words of the Torah, they were remembering and realizing how far they had strayed from the Torah. They were all crying and weeping. And Ezra the scribe and Nehemiah the Tirshita and the Levim that were leading the people say to the people, do not cry. Because today is a holy day to Hashem your God. 
Rather, what should you what should you do? He said, go home, eat fatty foods, and drink sweet drinks, right? Not even the diet soda, the real soda, or the orange juice, or the ruby red grapefruit juice, or the cranberry juice cocktail. They never serve just the cranberry juice. It's always in a cocktail with lots of sugar, right? So go home, drink, eat fatty foods. Go get yourself, get yourself some Wagyu steak, right? You ever seen a Wagyu steak? It's so marbleized, so much fat running through it. It's delicious. Go eat Wagyu beef and go drink sweet drinks. If anybody, you know that your neighbor doesn't have food for a shana, make sure he has food too so that everybody should be eating and feasting. Because today is holy to our master. And do not be sad. Because the joy of Hashem is your strength. And Levites were going amongst the people. And they were quieting them down because the people were crying bitterly. Their lives had gone so off track. They were so off kilter. They had so messed up on following what they were supposed to do. And then literally the Levim are going amongst the people. It's okay. It's okay. Quiet down. Don't worry. And they're saying, Hasu, hush, hush. Today is a holy day. Don't be sad. Don't be sad. And sure enough, what happened? And sure enough, the people all went home to go eat their fatty foods and to drink their sweet drinks. Manos to send packages of food to people who didn't have. And to make a very joyous occasion. Because they understood the things that they were told. I don't know if I understand what they were told. What exactly were they told? These people had messed up their lives. They had been living in exile. And they had assimilated out. And they were bowing down to Babylonian idols for decades. They were living lives of debauchery. As a matter of fact, many of the people who came up with Ezra the scribe were the, the, the most prestigious of the people often didn't come. It was people who were often of, of ignoble birth. Children who they knew who the mother was, they didn't know who the father was, or they knew both the parents were there, but they weren't supposed to be together, and all kinds of all kinds of children of low birth. Many of the people that came up with Ezra, there was the Gemara talks about how they had to very specifically keep track of the lineage of everybody because there were such different kinds of people. And a lot of the people who came up were the shattered, broken, assimilated people who may have been living lives of debauchery and idol worship for decades. So if they want to cry on Rosh Hashanah, shouldn't we just let them cry? Finally, they, they feel bad for what they've done. It's Rosh Hashanah. And, and, and the scribe, Ezra the scribe, is reading to them the Torah, and he's explaining it to them, and they're like, oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I become? How did this happen? So finally, they're having a moment of repentance, and what do you say to them? No, 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 stop, 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 shh, shh, hush, hush, don't cry, don't repent. They don't say don't repent, but don't cry, be happy. Be happy. It's, it's Hashem's good day. Be happy. It's Hashem's holy day. Yom Kippur is Hashem's holy day. Plenty of people are crying on Yom Kippur. We don't tell them hush. Right? Yom Kippur is called Yom HaKadosh. It's, it's the holy day. Banora, the holy and awesome day. Plenty of people are crying. We don't tell them stop crying. 
So why are we telling these people to stop crying? They're finally, finally realizing how far they've gone, how much they've messed up, how distant their lives have been from what they're supposed to be. And they're finally crying. And we say, no, 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 don't cry. And it says they went home and they, understood, they ate and they drank and they made merriment. Why? Because they understood. Because they understood that which was explained to them. What was explained to them? What exactly was explained to them? What is the secret of Rosh Hashanah that these Levites and the Ezra the scribe and Nehemiah the Tarshita explained to them? And they're like, oh, okay. And they wiped away their tears and they went to go eat and drink and be merry. What was explained to them? What did they understand? I want to understand it too. Because I want my, my Rosh Hashanah to be like that as well. Right now, frankly, I'm a little bit nervous about Rosh Hashanah. I don't think I used 5781 in the best way possible. I think that God invested in me tremendously in the year 5781. He gave me a beautiful home and plenty of food. I didn't go hungry even once. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I many times went to the far opposite extreme of hunger, maybe too many times. I, 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 I have a roof over my shoulder. I've got air conditioning in my house and, and heating. And I could say these things openly because I got a funny feeling that most of you have that too. In which case, Hashem has invested in you in 5781. What? The gifts that he has showered upon our heads. So I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. I'm a little bit nervous right now. I know that my year-end review is coming up real soon, and I didn't make the cut. I didn't meet my sales goals for this year. And Rosh Hashanah is the day where God says, who's going to be cut from the program? And who's getting promoted in the company? So is it okay if I could be a little bit nervous? I, I'd like to understand what exactly the people were told that made them so joyous. So that's, let's go, so far we've got two questions. We'll do one more question and then we're going to go back and try to understand. The last question, and this is one of the most classic questions when it comes to the high holidays. Everybody, everybody asks this question. Why do we have Rosh Hashanah before Yom Kippur? If Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment and Yom Kippur is the day of atonement, wouldn't I prefer to be atoned first and then come into my judgment clean? Right. Doesn't that make more sense? I actually know somebody right now. Right now, I know somebody who is in the middle of massive legal trouble. And by the way, his story is, is so cautionary. It's he was almost he got involved with some really bad people. He was pulled into it by someone else in the family. They extorted him. It was crazy, but he ended up stealing to because he was afraid. He never even enjoyed what he stole. And now he's really, really afraid. He's got court cases. He's got it's a scary moment for him. And that's the reason why it's such a cautionary tale is we, we all have this fantasy 
that if we do wrong, we're going to enjoy it so much and it's going to be worth it. Even, even if we end up getting paid for, even if we end up having to get punished for it or pay for it, we're like, but it's going to be so good. And we never end up really appreciating or enjoying the fruits of our ill-gotten gains. They're just not really, they're, 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 it's a pleasure that doesn't really last. It's, it's nothing. So sadly, this guy, and I know he's got a court case and he's trying to work out right now. He's trying to work out to make amends, to do whatever he can, to, to make things whole so that by the time he actually gets in front of the court, he's cleared. So he's trying to get cleared before the court case because he knows the court case is coming up and all he wants to do is get clear first. So he can come into court and say, look, yeah, I may have done something's wrong, but here it is. I, I have gotten, I've achieved full forgiveness from all parties involved. Mm, they all signed off on it. I'm good to go. No one's, no, I didn't wrong anybody. I'm okay. I made good on everything. Why don't we want to do that? Have Yom Kippur. Make good on everything. Then we come into court on Rosh Hashanah for the judgment day, the one day of the year where they decide what we're going to be. We come and we say, look, God, <laughs> I know, I know. Five, seven, eight, one, I didn't do a lot of great things, but guess what? I got a full pardon. I got a full pardon, God. You can't do anything to me now. I mean, whatever, you could, obviously, because you're God and you're cool like that, but I'm all clear, God. Why don't we do that? Okay. So those are our three questions. Number one, how does the Torah tell us that we should rely on a miracle? We don't rely on miracles. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to rely on miracles. So why are we partying on Rosh Hashanah and making, getting all, get, doing our grooming beforehand and eating and drinking nicely? Why are we just relying on miracles? Number two, what exactly was told to the men and women who were crying when they were watching Ezra, the scribe, read from them from the Sefer Torah, and they're reminded of all the things that they did wrong, and they finally wanted to do a proper repentance, and they're crying and weeping, and they were told something, and they went home and started eating Wagyu beef and, and drinking delicious wines. What exactly were they told? I want someone to whisper that in my ear on Rosh Hashanah so that I shouldn't be so nervous. And number three, why don't we have Day of Atonement before Day of Judgment? Now. We have a rule, and we've covered it multiple times in this series, in this class. The rule of the Jewish calendar. That in Judaism, we don't believe that the calendar, like time is just something that goes on a continuum all the way out into the future. Rather, we look at time as a circle. It's the circle of the year. Okay. <laughs> the circle of life. Okay. All right. It's the circle of the year. Right. The circle of the year is called Ma'agal Hashanah, the circle of the year. And we believe in Judaism that you keep coming back to that same station again and again and again. And each time you come back, amazingly, you're able to tap into whatever powers, whatever energies, whatever is in the air at that time. We've talked about this around Pesach time, how Pesach is a time of redemption. So even though we're not slaves in Egypt, we can experience personal redemption on Pesach if we are clued into what it's all about. And we always, we look for as early, the earliest possible time we can find for anything significant happening on that day, because that will tell us a lot about that day. So what's the first significant event that happened on Rosh Hashanah? 
Well, the first thing that happened was 5,781, almost 5,782 years ago. And that was the day that God blew his Holy Spirit into the Jewish, into the Jewish people, no Jewish, into Adam. It's the birthday of mankind. At the services on Rosh Hashanah, we say, Hayom Haras Olam. Today is the birthday of the world. Today is the birthday of the world does not mean that this is the first time a hemlock tree sprouted forth or a sunflower. It's not the first time an anteater or a skunk showed up. It's the first time that a human being was born. What is a human being? A human being is a hominid form, a human-like form that is imbued with a godly spirit. There could have been all sorts of apes before humankind, some of them more advanced, some of them more primitive, chimpanzees, bonobos, but there was also Homo erectus and earlier forms of humanoid types of apes that were running around, maybe in South Africa, maybe in various places in the world. A lot of places in the world like to claim that they are the birthplace of mankind. But the reality is that mankind is not an ape Mankind, and it's not just that he's different because he has less hair on his, you know, on his body, and but it, it's a qualitatively different being. The jump from advanced ape to human is unfathomable because at that moment a hominid form was imbued with the spirit of God. That happened on Rosh Hashanah, five thousand seven hundred and eighty-two years ago, and the reason why we call it the birthday of the world is because the whole world was being created to be a, a home for humankind. So when humankind finally moved in, that's day one of the world. Just like if you build a house, right? You spend a year and a half, you're laying foundations, you're pouring concrete, you're building stick building the walls with carpentry, you're finishing the rough-in, you're getting the electric, you're getting the plumbing, you're getting all the different, you know, the rooms, the paint, the finishing, the flooring, Everything is working. And then finally, you get your certificate of occupancy. And then finally, the Smith family moves in. And that's day one of that home. That's the first day it became a home. Until then, it was just a structure. And suddenly, day one, it becomes a home. Earth became a home to humanity on Rosh Hashanah. Which means that what is the power of Rosh Hashanah? The power of Rosh Hashanah is that it's a day to create human beings. And if every year we have the ability to tap into whatever is on tap on that day, just like on Pesach, we have the ability to tap into redemptive powers. On Rosh Hashanah, we have the ability to create humanity. Now, the one person that you can create really is yourself, because you don't have the ability to create other people. That's called abuse when you try to create other people. You only can create yourself. But wow, what a power when I realize that Rosh Hashanah is about creating myself. God created me or a version of me on Rosh Hashanah, which means that this is the day that has the power to create. Which means that I can be whatever I want. You know, you have today, um, you have these um, 
games like Fortnite or Roblox or Minesweeper, uh, mine, mine, Minescape, whatever it's called, Mine World, Minecraft, Minecraft, okay? And people can create themselves into all sorts of things. You have designers who are creating all kinds of skins. So you have the basic player, you know, who's playing in Fortnite, running around with a gun, doing their thing, whatever. But like, you can create it to be a clown. You can make it look like a man with this kind of clothing or a woman with that kind of clothing. Or you can make it look like a rhinoceros who's holding a, a gun and running around and doing all kinds of things. You have incredible amounts of flexibility. And more so when it comes to like Roblox or Minecraft, where you know you have the ability to create different avatars for yourself. And you start putting the pixels. You put this on this block here, this block here. You want purple pants? You got purple pants. You want brown pants? You got brown pants. You want you know um, a tutu? You got a tutu. Whatever you want. You're sort of creating an avatar for yourself. Now in Rush Shuttle, we get to do that in real time for ourselves. We actually get to create ourselves. It's a wild day. It's a wild, wild day. But let's let's even see more than that. So number one, it's a day where we get to create ourselves. But number two, now we call Rosh Hashanah Yom Hadin, the day of judgment, because it was the first time that God judged mankind. Because guess what? Besides being created on Rosh Hashanah, we also committed the first sin. Mankind committed the first sin on Rosh Hashanah. God's like, hey, Adam and Eve, don't eat from the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? They went and ate of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And then God came to deal with them. They had just messed up majorly, which means that they had to stand in judgment. But how God is the awesomest. God is the coolest. He doesn't come to Adam and Eve and say, Adam and Eve, you guys messed up. I asked you to do one thing. Eh? I asked you to do one thing. Two hours later, you're going against my word. I'm going to have you whacked. You know, that's not what God does. Amazing. I'm telling you, I wish I could be like God. Like, I, I wish I could be compassionate and brilliant and amazing. All God does is he says one word to Adam and Eve at, at first. System Ayeka. Where are you? That's God's entire judgment. Where are you? Hey, what's up? You know, and I know, and you know that I know, and I know that you know that I know that you messed up really, really fundamentally. As soon as they ate from the tree, they knew. Suddenly they start covering themselves over. The second they eat from the tree, they know that they are different human beings, that whatever they were before, they are not the same anymore. And immediately they start to cover over this new being. They look down and they see that they're naked and they're embarrassed because suddenly whatever they were, they were very different than what they were beforehand. Before they weren't embarrassed at all. Now they're incredibly instantly ashamed by what they've done, as we all are every time we do something wrong. Ashamed immediately after we do it. And God comes to them. He's not yelling at them. He's not punitive. He's not telling them, okay, go into time out. He's not, he, God is so amazing. All he says to them is, okay, guys, where are you? What's up? What have you done? And, and, and tell me now, I, I just want to know, I just want to know, where are you? What an amazing, just to think about this, how amazing God is. There's no finger wagging. 
There's no yelling. There's no screaming. There's no, I can't believe you did this. There's no, how dare you? I gave you everything. There's none of that. All God says is, tell me where you are. I just want to know where, where we all stand on this over here. And by the way, all Adam and Eve had to do is say, oh, I'll tell you where we are, God. Yeah, we messed up. We messed up. But we're good now. Like, we're really, really good now. We realize how stupid that was, how foolish that was. God, we're on your team now. And God went, okay, great. That's all they, all they do. Is they say, God, we messed up. We're on your team now. We were on team Adam and Eve for a while. We thought we had a better plan than you. You told us what to do. We thought we came up with a better plan than you. For a little while, we were on team Adam and Eve, but now we're on team God. And I would be like, okay, great. And he would have left them in the garden. Unfortunately, that's not what they did. Unfortunately, what they did is they excused everybody. They blamed everybody else. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the snake. And then at that point, God says, all right, you guys out of the garden. There's an adults-only resort. There's an adults-only resort. No children here. Stop blaming other people. That is what our judgment looks like every single year on Rosh Hashanah. God is going to come to you on Tuesday morning and he's going to say to you, hey, Susan, where are you? Hey, Michael, where are you? Hey, Zelda, where are you? Hey, Sandy, where are you? Hey, Marilyn, where are you? Hey, Lester, where are you? Hey, Harry, where are you? Hey, Don, where are you? That's what, that's what God's going to do. Come and say, hey, Adina, how are you? Where are you? Hey, Sarah, how are you? Where are you? <laughs> that's what God is going to do. God's going to come and just say, where are you? That's it. That's all God wants to know. God is not going to come to you on Rosh Hashanah morning and say, you miserable little creep. I gave you so much. I gave you so much gifts. I invested in you. And you took all that I gave you, you threw it away. You spent your time watching daytime TV and talking gossip about other people and Twitter bombing people. How, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? God's not going to say that. All God is going to say to you is, where are you? And amazingly, if you say to God, I'm on your team, God. Yeah, I know that I messed up. You know that I messed up. You know that I know that I messed up. I know that you know that I messed up. We all know. And forget about it. You're not asking me. You're not asking me to, you didn't ask me for a whole mea culpa. You didn't say to me, what did you do? That's not what God asks. God does not say to you, what did you do? All God says is, where are you? Tell me where you are right now. If we say, I'm on your team, and we really mean it, God's like, fine, you're great. I'll make sure you get all the right equipment for the coming year. Thank you for being part of my team. That's all it takes. How crazy is that, my friends? How amazing is that? How It's wild. Hashem is so awesome. No yelling, no screaming, no judgments, no anger. Just asking you, where are you located this year?
Where are you located right now? Says the Gemara in Yerushalmi, the Jerusalemite Talmud, Rosh Hashanah, Tractate Rosh Hashanah, page 7b. The Amar, Rav Simon, B'Shem, Rabbi Shua ben Levi. Rav Simon says in the name of Rav Shua ben Levi, Ein HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Danes HaAdam, Ela B'Sha'ashu Omed Ba. Hashem only judges you where you are exactly. How do we know this? Because there's a verse where God is dealing with Yishmael. And Yishmael was the son of Abraham who had done some terrible things. He was trying to kill Yitzchak, his brother, which, if you're wondering, is called fratricide. That's right, fratricide, killing your brother. So Yishmael was trying to kill his brother Yitzchak so he could be the sole inheritor of all that Abraham was and all that Abraham had. And Abraham has to send him out, and he's dying, and God comes, and he hears that Yishmael right now is like, I'm good. God, I'm, I'm going to be good. I'm, gonna, I'm amazing. I'm sorry. I'm just going to be great. And the angels are like, wait a second, God. <laughs> you know, we have that viewing room. Yeah, down the hall over there where you can see the future and all that. I know you, God, can see it all the time. The angels, we have to slip into that auditorium and ask for specific things from the librarian. Who, by the way, maybe God, you could talk to her. She's got to get a better attitude. She never wants to bring up the microfilm. Anyway, God, yeah, so we were looking at the microfilm and... The children of Ishmael, those Ishmaelites, they're going to kill lots of Jews. Lots and lots and lots of Jews. Yeah, yeah. How about we just, um, and the Jews are your children. So how about we let Ishmael die over here? He's dying of thirst anyway. Let him go. And God says, no, I don't care what he's going to do in the future. I'm looking at him right now. Ask the Gemara, okay, fine. So Hashem doesn't judge you by what you're going to do in the future. That kind of makes sense. There's a whole ethical question. If you go back in history, could you kill baby Hitler or not, right? That's a very big ethical dilemma, right? If you right now were able to go back in time to 1920, are you allowed to kill baby Hitler who's never done anything yet? Is it an innocent baby? The answer is no, by the way, right? No matter what you know about, about Hitler, you're not allowed to kill baby Hitler. And by the way, part of that is because if that's what's supposed to happen, so it won't be Hitler, it'll be his next door neighbor whose name happens to be Schmittler. It rhymes with Hitler. And he ends up being the big bad guy instead because you killed Hitler. So you killed an innocent baby. And whatever's supposed to happen to the world is going to happen to the world anyway. So don't do it. So fine. Hashem says, I'm not going to judge Ishmael based on what his people are going to do in the future. How about going past? What happened in the past? So Rabbi Shua Levi brings another verse. A verse in Job. The verse is in Job where it says, Imzach v'yashar atad is Job 8.6. Eov, parakhes, pasuk vav. Brings the Gemara and Yushami. We know that God doesn't judge on the future because God let Yishmael live, even though Yishmael's descendants were going to do lots of bad to the Jewish people. What about the past? Says the book of Job, chapter 8, verse 6. Imzach v'yashar atad. If you are right now, clean and clear and upright. Ki Hashem will protect you right now. V'shilam nevas tzidkecha and grant well-being to your righteous home. Points out the Gemara. It doesn't say if you were clear, if you were blameless and upright, but rather it says if you are blameless and upright. So from here we learn that God doesn't even judge us on the past. 
On Rosh Hashanah, again, God does not come to you and say, Levi, what did you do wrong in 5781? Please tell me all the lurid details. God's like, I don't care. I don't care what you did in 5781, says God. Today is 5782. Today is the day we recreate human beings. When we're recreating human beings, we can recreate them any way we want. So let me ask you, Levi, who are you today? And if you can say, God, I'm really on your side, and I really, really mean that, God's like, okay, I got you. You're good to go. I'll make sure you get all the right equipment for the whole year. I'll make sure you get your health that you're going to need. I'll make sure that you're going to get the wealth that you're going to need. I'm going to make sure you're going to get the well-being that you need. I'm going to make sure you get everything that you need because you're on my team. I gotta, if I have a soldier, I gotta, I gotta outfit the soldier properly. What an amazing opportunity. Now, of course, you can't be lying to God. That's the one thing you can't do. The one thing you can't do is lie to God because he's better than he, he, he doesn't need a polygraph. He's got your number. If you come to God and rush down and you're like, yeah, no, God, I'm, I'm totally on your side this year, and you totally don't mean it. He's gonna, he, you know, he knows that you're just lying to yourself because you can't even. The funny thing is, you can never lie to God. The question is really, do you lie to yourself or not? Like, how self-honest are you with yourself, right? If you're like, oh God, every if every year you're like, God, I'm on your team this time. I'm on this. I'm, I'm really on your team, and you're not lying to God. God knows the truth. If you don't really mean it, again, doesn't mean that you're not gonna do anything wrong. It means that you're coming to God and saying with absolute sincerity, I'm on your team. You are the boss this year. I follow your ideas, not my ideas. I tried following my ideas last time. I ate from the tree of fruit of knowledge and good and evil, and I was horrified by the results. I'm not doing that anymore, God. I'm on your team. I'm awaiting your instructions. If you're ready to do that, then you get all the blessings. And God says, I'm going to give this guy a good year because I got to give him the, I got, I got to give him the, the, um, I got to give him the equipment he needs. Listen carefully to this one really important rule. Rosh Hashanah is about who you are. Yom Kippur is about what you do. If you want to know, why do we even have Yom Kippur? Why do we even have Yom Kippur? If God comes to me at Rosh Hashanah and says, who are you? And as long as I say I'm with you, God, then God's like, okay, fine then why do we even have a Yom Kippur? The answer is not to get a good year. If you've said, if you've told God with absolute sincerity on Rosh Hashanah, I'm on your team, then you, don't, then, you're, then you don't need anything else. So why do we have a Yom Kippur? The answer is that we have a lot of muscle memory. We've been used to doing things a lot. For, let's say, for example, a person has a real anger problem. He's so used to just flying off the handle and yelling at people for every little provocation but now he told God, I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. The problem is he still has that muscle memory. So on Yom Kippur, we go to God and we say, cleanse us out so we don't have that muscle memory anymore. I don't want to I don't, I don't want to continue doing those habits because that's not who I am anymore. Remember, what, what did I tell you on Rosh Hashanah? I'm your guy. I'm on your team. I'm your soldier. And as your soldier, it would be highly inappropriate for me to be yelling and screaming at people if you, God, don't yell and scream at anybody. So... I, but the problem is I'm just, I'm so used to doing it because I did it for the past, for the first 50 years of my life. So God, please help remove all this anger from me and take away any residual stains that I have, any res residual muscle memory that I have. Why does Rosh Hashanah have to go before Yom Kippur? Because if you don't know who you are, then you don't know what to do. Rosh Hashanah is where you define who you are. You decide, are you on God's team? 
Or are you on Lady Burnham's team? Are you on your own team? Are you doing your own thing? Are you figuring it out for yourself? Like, whatever. I know God told me to do X, Y, and Z. And he, but like, I'm still, you know what, God? Hey, 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 slow down. I'm figuring this out for myself right now. You want to be that guy? Fine. Then you get to do whatever you want to do because that's the guy you decided you're going to be. Or you say, God, I'm on your team. In which case, if you say, God, I'm on your team, then you've got a lot of things that you've got to change. So now Yom Kippur comes after you've decided who you are. Now you've got to, you've decided who you are. It doesn't match up with what you do. So on Yom Kippur, we say to God, I want to do different things. I want to remove these bad hate behaviors. I want to bring on those good behaviors. But if you don't know who you are, how do you change what you do? Why should I change what I'm doing? I don't even know who I am. I don't know what my job is. I don't know what my mission is. Rosh Hashanah is the marching orders. Yom Kippur is where you switch out and you make sure you don't have the wrong stuff to carry out your marching orders. And now we understand how you can rely on a miracle. It says, we know that God will make miracles for us. And that's why on Rosh Hashanah, we're able to eat good meals and drink good foods. You know how I know God makes a miracle? Because it's Rosh Hashanah. That's the day that God created mankind. And if you can tell me a bigger miracle than the creation of humanity, I don't know what it is. And humanity, by the way, by the way tigers are complex. Spiders are complex, right? Spider webs, pound for pound, are way more powerful than a steel mesh wire system, right? So many animals in the world are so incredibly complex, right? But human beings are a billion times more complex because there's a combination of a physical body that can do all these incredible things, but it's combined with a spiritual neshama. It's like, it's like wild. How do you stick? How do you shove a little bit of infinity into a finite body? But God did that on Yom Kippur. That was called the creation of mankind. What a miracle that is. Now, I know that God created mankind on Rosh Hashanah, which means that I know that every year that happens over and over again. So just like we know that God made a miracle in making Levi 1.0 on Rosh Hashanah, the original Rosh Hashanah, in those days his name was Adam, but every one of us comes from Adam. So too, I know that God will make me again. I know that God will make me again. I can be trustworthy of that because this is the day that God makes mankind. God makes the most amazing miracles every year in Rosh Hashanah. From the very first Rosh Hashanah, where God shoved an infinite soul into a finite body until 5782, when God can take Levi version 1.17 and change him to Levi version 1.18. He's a totally different being. Of course he can. It's creation of mankind day. That's when God always makes miracles. That explains what Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levim told the Jewish people when they were busy crying. The people were crying because they were so sorry for all the things that they did for decades in Bavel and Babylonia. And the scribe came to him and said, look, you guys chose to show up. We offered all the Jews in Bavel to come up and rebuild the temple. And most of them said, no, thanks. You know why? Because they weren't on God's team, or they weren't as much on God's team. You guys, the guys who left everything behind and said, God, I'm on your army. If you're rebuilding your house, 
I want to be the carpenter. You're okay. Rebuild yourself from right here from this day. Don't be racked by the guilt. Don't be held back by your former activities. It's just not you anymore. Today is God's incredible holy day. The day in which he makes mankind again and again and again every single year. Don't worry about what you were in Babylonia. You are now in God's vanguard of his army because you're the ones who chose to come to Yerushalayim. You're the ones who chose to come to Eretz Yisrael, leaving everything behind and serve Hashem. You guys are the generals. You're all getting promoted. You're all getting beautiful, you know, seals on your chest and medals and all that because you're the, you're the, you're the, the amazing ones who came. Go home, eat, party with God. It's going to be a great year. Because no matter what you did before in Babylonia, you stood here before God and you're like, I'm on your army. I showed up. And if that's the case, it's going to be great for you. Go home and enjoy the day with God because we're starting something big together right now. You've just all been recreated. You've all been miraculously turned into God's generals. Go home and have a feast, generals. Go home and have a feast, warriors. Let me tell you a story. We'll close with a story. In Russia, the czar would travel from time to time to various cities, but he had such a vast empire that there were many cities that would only see the czar once every five to ten years. So he would... Uh, he had a special honor guard. It'd be, you know, when, when a king comes to a town, the appropriate thing is there should be much fanfare. There should be a big grandstand and the king is up there with his wife, maybe some of his children, some dignitaries. And then below the grandstand, there's a big marching band and there's soldiers that are marching with their muskets and there's a 21 gun salute. And, you know, it's, it's supposed to be something very honorable for a king. So the king had a very specific detail, their entire job was to go to whatever city the king was supposed to go to and to set up and to make sure that when the king showed up, there'd be a beautiful, beautiful, honorable welcome of the, of the king with a massive military march and the display of arms and force and all that. Now, of course, the czar never would disclose his exact travel plans. That would be a security problem. But he would send, let's say, for example, he'd send the group. It would go September 1st. And the king was supposed to show up somewhere between September 15th and September 22nd within that week sometime. And they, they, they would show up on the September 1st. The first thing they would do is scope out the, the plaza of that city. And the next few days, they'd be setting up the grandstand, the bleachers, the whole thing. And then they would put markers down. I was actually in, um, in, in uh, Victory Day in, in Russia. is May 9th. It's when they celebrate their victory over the Germans. And it's one of their most... Um, their most impressive military parades of the year. And I was right outside the Kremlin. So the Kremlin is a massive fortress, which contains a lot of governmental buildings. And right in front of the Kremlin is the Red Square. And that's where the St. Basil's Cathedral is. And that's where Lenin's tomb is. So I was right there, but it happened to be, it was like May 8th, it was the day before. And the whole entire square was, was uh, totally, totally shut off because they were busy putting all the markers in the ground. So that you know, it's a very impressive, um, the march goes on for hours, like thousands and tens of thousands of troops. And they've got these massive missile, you know, trucks and military, all kinds of crazy stuff is coming out there. 
So everyone has to know where to go when you make a left over here and there's markers on the ground. So they were in the middle of setting up Red Square for the big Victory Day parade and we weren't allowed in. So these people, that's what they do. They go, they put up all the grandstands where the king can stand and then they start marking the floor. Here's where the marching band goes over here and over here is where the infantry grows and here's where the cavalry goes and here's where, you know, the whole thing, they get to get a whole system. So they're done that by day five of September, let's say, and then what do they do after that? They start uh, practicing their marches. They've done them in many other cities because all they do is march basically. That's what their job is. They're an honor guard. But they want to, you know, you, you always got to make sure you get it down to this particular city. You got to get it right. So they start marching around and they do that for about 10 days or so. And then the king shows up on the 15th, the 16th, whatever, the 17th. There's a lookout who's a couple miles down the road. And as soon as the czar is showing up, he comes yelling, the czar is coming, the czar is coming. Everyone scrambles, they get their special dress uniforms on, every button is polished, everything's beautiful. By the time the czar comes into the square, everybody's there standing at attention with their instruments and their weapons and beautiful. So one time they go to the city, it's out in the middle, the middle of nowhere, you know, like Novosibirsk, no, no, yeah, Novosibirsk, Siberia. Who knows? Why? I don't. I don't think the Tsar ever made it all the way to Siberia, but somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. And um, they set up. They get there on the first day of the month. They get there, I don't know, whatever it is, uh, July first, and they set up between July first and July third, July fourth. And they practice, and they're doing all their their marches and all that. They practice for ten days. Where's the king? The king's supposed to show up. He doesn't show up the 15th, the 16th, the 17th, the 18th, the 19th, the 20th. Every day they're doing a few more marches. But like at this point, the marches are pretty lackluster. Everyone really knows the square well. They know what they're supposed to do. But it's just like whatever. The 21st goes by. The 22nd goes by. At this point, the general's thinking they probably forgot about us. The king forgot about us. He's not even showing. We've never had to wait this long. So whatever. So he finds there's a there's a there's a. There's a casino slash bar in town and uh, the general has got some disposable income and he's got uh, a little bit of a hankering for playing the cards for some games of chance, if you will. And uh, he also happens to have a little bit of a hankering for some of the adult beverages, a little bit of alcohol, you know, whatever. And he starts going to the casino bar and he's playing his cards and he's hanging out and doing whatever he's doing over there. You know, by the time the, by the time the 28th day of the, of the month comes, right. He's, He's getting drunk at 10 a.m., right? He's day drinking like a glory, you know, like, you know, with the, the, he's getting drunk at 10 a.m. He's already in his car. He's fighting. He's arguing, whatever. And what happens? On the 29th day of July, the czar shows up. And the runner comes running down. Everybody, everyone, the czar is here. The czar is here. And every, all the soldiers, they know what's up. They make sure they put on their beautiful tunics. They put on their things, their uniforms. Every button is polished. And they all scramble out. They got their tuba and the drums and everyone's got their, their weapons, their muskets. Everyone's got their, their swords and their scabbards. Everything's looking perfect. Where's the general? The general is drunk in the bar. It's 11 a.m. That's pretty much what happens at 11 a.m. He's drunk in the bar already. But no one's going to lead him. And the soldiers, soldiers they, they need to be led. Soldiers don't act on their own. It has to get a command. So there's no one moving. And the czar comes into the middle of town and there's no band. There's no dun, 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 It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. And there are all the soldiers. So the czar says to his, his wagon driver, stop. And he gets out of the wagon. He goes over to the soldiers. He's like, What's going on? Why is nobody marching for me? Why is no one showing me any honor or accord? They say, we don't have our leader. He's like, where's the general? 
No, no. So finally, the czar turns to everybody and says, is there anybody here right now who's willing to get up, grab the baton, and lead these men into a, a march? Some corporal on the back, smart kid. He's been watching the guy do it for weeks. He's like, yeah, raises his hand. He says, I'll do it. What's your name? Corporal Mikhail, you know, Goldstein. Go ahead, Corporal. You take it. Take the baton. Sure enough, he picks up the baton. And as he's watched the general do so many times, and the band strikes up and they're doing their marches and people coming in from the right and the left and the cavalry and the infantry and the band. And it's beautiful. And the king is sitting up there with his and his family in the grandstand. But as they start playing the music, the drunk general in his bar a few blocks away, he hears the sound of the entire marching band. He's like, oh, he realizes he quickly is grabbing his tunic on, trying to put it on. It's all messed up. It's got a little bit of yesterday's dinner on it, maybe less last night's drink on the other side. And he goes running. He's pulling on his boots as he's running. <laughs> he's running, he's running. By the time he gets there, he's half drunk. Not a very fast sprinter when you're half drunk. By the time he gets there, they're just concluding their marches. And who does he see? Corporal Goldstein is leading the people. And the king says, wait a second. The king comes down from the grandstand. He says, Corporal, you stay here. General Medvedev, how much do I pay you? Uh, 20,000 rubles a year. Corporal Goldstein, how much do I pay you? 300 rubles a year, Your Excellency. And the czar turns to the general. He says, I pay you 20,000 rubles a year. And all I ask is that when I come into town, you play some music for me. And you can't do that? Guess what? You're not a general in my army anymore. You're not a general anywhere. Take your tunic with all your medals and take your sword and you give it right here to Corporal Goldstein. Corporal, you stepped up for me today. From now on, you are a general. That is Rosh Hashanah. It's God's day. It's his holy day. He's looking for a few good men. He's got some marching orders for us. And oftentimes, we have not been on his team. We were busy doing our own thing, gambling, drinking away our, our resources. And now God says, is there, is there anybody here ready to step up? And all you got to do is step up on Rosh Hashanah and say, God, I'm yours. And what does that mean? Does that mean that you have to change your entire life radically? No, because God doesn't want you to do that. God wants you to challenge yourself every day. God wants you to change yourself slightly. But if you can really come to God on Rosh Hashanah and say that, if you can hear him asking, where are you? If you can just hear God's voice saying to you, Ayeka, where are you? And you're ready to respond to that call. You're really ready to say, God, I've tried it my way too many years. It's not working. This time I'm yours. And you're really, really ready to do that. You win. You got it. You get the Shana Tova Masuka, the happy, sweet new year. Thank you all so much for coming and listening and being awesome. Thank you.